This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So, again, a pleasure to welcome uh, Reverend Shoren Heather Yaruso coming to us from San Francisco, where it's two hours earlier. So thank you very much for being here. Uh, just many of you maybe already know Heather, but uh, for those who don't, uh, she entered Tassajara Zen Mountain Monastery in 2008 for, uh, as many people do, thinking, I'll just be here for a little while. <laughs> uh, she's still at San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, she ended up spending, I think, seven years at Tassajara um, total and was ordained by Tia Strozer as a, as a Zen priest uh, in 2015 and um, spent some time in Brooklyn where Tia was the guiding teacher uh, for Brooklyn Zen Center, uh, where she was Eno and program director and served as an executive director for a period of time uh, and has served in many roles, both at Tassajara and at uh, other practice places of San Francisco Center, currently at City Center. Uh, and uh, after being Shuso with her uh, teacher or with senior Dharma teacher, um, Paul Holler. Um, she's currently director and head of practice for the Zen Center's online practice center. I would love to talk to her about that sometime, what her experience of that is, but not now. <laughs> uh, today's talk that she's offering us is uh, the Seuss of Zen. Does the Grinch have Buddha nature is the subtitle or the, or the lead question. So we're all looking forward to hearing about that. Heather, thank you again. And, uh, Welcome. Um, thank you, Joro, and um, everyone else for being here. I feel like it's a sort of homecoming uh, that I uh, haven't. Uh, I started my Zen practice in Austin back in 2001. And I think the only person here right now is Pat Yanks. Hi, Pat. Um, who I feel was uh, one, and then I think also Melanie. Those are the two people that I remember from way back in the in the day in Austin. And so it's really sweet to be here. Um, and also I want to thank Mako-san, um, who I spent many wonderful, sometimes cold <laughs> days and nights at Tassar. So that's uh, wonderful to see you. And there's also Jonathan and I see Drew and I'm sure there's other people. I only have one screen up, so I'm not sure who's on screen number two. Um, so thank you all for being here on this Saturday morning. And as Choro said, I will be um, talking a little bit about Moo. So um, some of you might be familiar with this koan, some of you not. Uh, essentially, it's a, it's a very short koan. Uh, so I'll, I'll read you the case. A monk asked Joshu, does a dog have the Buddha nature? And Joshu answered, Mu. Um, this is probably one of the most popular sayings associated with Zen. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, koan, koan, K-O-A-N, using the Roman alphabet is a Japanese word that means a matter for public thought. In Chinese, it means something like official business. Okay. So koans are enigmatic anecdotes that can help us deepen our experiential knowledge, right? Our body knowledge of the Buddhist teachings. The practice of Zen, after all, is a body practice, right? Illumination and transformation happening here below the neck. So my experience is that these puzzling stories often, um, not often, but probably always, except for I don't know all of them, <laughs> point to some fundamental understanding of form and emptiness, right? The relative and the absolute truth. So though these koans are puzzling, they're not intellectual puzzles to be solved by the thinking mind or discursive mind or small mind as we 
often refer to it. Um, they are utilized, especially back uh, in ancient uh, China and Japan by Chan, which is the Chinese word for Zen, meditation. Chan teachers, uh, mostly in the Renzai tradition, they were used to confound our logical minds, right? And help us break through the barrier of words and phrases to some spiritual epiphany or what we call in Zen, Kensho or Satori. Although those two words mean something different, uh, I'm just gonna use them interchangeably. So when Joshu, this uh, Chan master, who is uh, the master or the ancestor in uh, this koan, he lived from 778 to 897. And when he had his first experience of Kensho, which Ken means seeing and Sho means essence, when he was, uh, what I read was 17 years old. Uh, so he saw into his true nature, which is no different than our true nature. He described it this way. Suddenly I was ruined and homeless, right? I think that's also partly why I stayed at Tassahara for so long. I kind of also felt once released from the nine to five TikTok world, I, I felt a little ruined and homeless, maybe not obviously in the same way as Joshu did, uh, but had my own feeling of uh, being supported by the universe without um, so much Heather uh, driving that, right? And uh, this teacher, Katsuki, Sakita Sensei, he says uh, his understanding of Joshu's phrase is that he was thrown, Joshu was thrown into a great emptiness. And so Kensho is a non-intellectual, non-dualistic, somatic experience. And by somatic, well, we often use that word soma just to mean the body. I see it as, or understand it to be a holistic experience of not only the body, but also the mind, heart, obviously, we can't separate ourselves into uh, discrete units. Everything is dependently co-arising. So there's a deep somatic experience of our boundless connection with all sentient and uh, non-sentient beings, right? This unifying source that we call Buddha nature. And Ehe Dogen Zenji, as you're probably familiar with, he's the 13th century founder of Soto Zen in Japan. He calls this in his beautifully poetic way, the wisdom that runs through all things, right? Um, so koans are most often these short dialogues between teachers and students. Sometimes it's the student trying to clarify their practice or demonstrate their understanding to their teacher or sometimes even challenging their teacher's instructions or the teacher's knowledge. So some of the students asking the questions uh, are often, they could be novice monks or nuns, or they may already have had Kensho experience or Satori um, that's been verified by their teacher. Some koans are uh, questions also that maybe the teacher uh, off, uh, explored themselves. Maybe that even that was a question that brought the teacher to practice, right? And also koans can capture what we call um, in Japanese mondo, M-O-N-D-O, or verbal exchanges between two mature teachers. And sometimes these teachers might even be from different schools, different schools of Zen. Some people call that like Dharma combat. Uh, so the two main schools of Zen in the United States, as you probably know, are Renzai and Soto. And usually, you know, we consider one of the main differences between these two schools to be that the Renzai tradition emphasizes this koan introspection, or another way they phrase it is story contemplation. And the Soto school emphasizes just, just sitting, right, shikintaza, or silent illumination is another way it's expressed uh, in Chan literature. So although these uh, methods or schools are often viewed as an either or, right? Either you study koans or you just sit. The Buddhist scholar, Thomas Cleary uh, says that this division uh, really doesn't have any basis in the actual Chinese records from um, the Tang and the Song dynasty of China 
So the Song Dynasty of China was from 960 to 1279. And Zhou Xu lived in the Tang Dynasty. So these collections of koans uh, were compiled, right? These koans were compiled in the Song Dynasty, drawing from uh, these teachings and stories from the previous dynasty. So in um, his introduction to the Book of Serenity, one of these collections of koans, clearly, clearly states that the two, John, the two Chan masters uh, of, of Song China, Dai Yi, Dai e Soko, the Renzai teacher, and Tendo Sogoku, the Soto Zen teacher, um, supported each other. And actually their teachings and traditions provided a counterpoint to shake up you know, these attachments that their students might have had to a certain way, a fixed view of Zen, right? Um, so they often use this, the, they often um, trying to shake up, these koans are trying to shake up our attachment to grasping and rejecting, right? So uh, in fact, Dae Soko, although he was a proponent of koan introspection as the way to realize enlightenment, he also saw in his time how this became like a perfunctory literary exercise, right? That this, that koan introspection was no longer this vibrant practice of rigorous contemplation rather than something people were doing rotely. So he ordered the burning of the Blue Cliff record, including the wood blocks that, uh, so that basically meant that the Blue Cliff record wasn't produced for I think a hundred years or so, because he wanted uh, obviously <laughs> to um, have students not rely on these teachings in a in a intellectual way, right? To uh, help us or help his students then have an experience in the body, right? Beyond words and phrases, beyond the thinking mind. And clearly, Cleary says this about uh, Chan literature that two of the characteristics are to engage the reader in mental dialogue rather than uh, professing doctrines and dogmas, and also to enforce the demand for patience, the suspension of preconceptions and judgments, right? And also uh, encouraging or exhorting uh, sustained concentration without which progress can't be made. So this Mu Koan, and Mu is uh, spelled in the Roman alphabet, M-U, Mu. It's the first case in a collection of koans titled Gateless Gate, which has 48 cases. In Japanese, this collection is called Mu Mon Kan. Mu meaning nothingness, Mon, M-O-N, meaning gate, and Kan, K-A-N, meaning barrier. So it's a gate that has no barrier. So that's why it's referred to as the gateless gate. So the Japanese teacher and author who I mentioned before, uh, Sakita Sensei, uh, in his book, uh, The Two Zen Classics, he says uh, that the ideograph for Khan may also refer to a checkpoint. At a boundary in China where travelers' credentials were often examined by the police, so another possible interpretation of Mumun Khan is a checkpoint that's not blocked in any way. Okay. So the gateless gate was composed by the Zen monk Mumon Ikai. And in this collection, uh, Mumon adds his own commentary, which is uh, his own commentary and then a poem that sums up his understanding of the koan. And in his preface to The Gateless Gate, Mumon states this, he says, Buddhism makes mind its foundation, right? So Buddhism makes mind its foundation and no gate its gate, okay? So now how do you pass through this no gate? I mean, that in and of itself is a koan, right? Buddhism makes mind its foundation and no gate its gate. So how do you pass through this no gate? So if there's no barrier, what prevents us from passing through? And once through, are we anywhere different from where we were before? Right? Perhaps Joshua's move could lend some, some, might shed some light on this gateless gate. 
right? So a monk asked Joshu, does a dog have the Buddha nature? Joshu answered, Mu. So this version of Mu, koan, is the one that's most popularized, right? I'm referring again to this translation by Sakita Sensei. Um, however, there are other versions of this koan where Joshu responds with yes. And then also when another monk asks him, he responds to the same question and says no. So this, um, the Dogen scholar Stephen Hine refers to this as the expansive, the expansive version of the koan. And in the Book of Serenity, uh, this is case number 17, Zhao Zhou's dog. And Zhao Zhou is the Chinese name for, for Joshu. Zhao Zhou is Chinese, not Japanese, but I'm most familiar with referring to him as Joshu. Since, uh, I'm not very good either with pronouncing Chinese or Japanese, but I'm a little bit more familiar with, Chinese, with Japanese names. So it's Zhao Zhou's dog. Uh, in the Book of Serenity, case number 17. So the way I understand Joshua's response of Mu, right? And also, I you know Mu can be translated as no, but really implying nothingness, uh, is that he's slicing through the monk's attempt at arriving at some intellectual certainty or fixed point of view, right? It's like um, Dae Sogaku, uh, really like burning everything, right? Like just stop relying on thought, stop relying on even the teachers of the past, right? What is your personal experience, right? Like the Buddha said, don't rely on what I'm saying, but have your own experience. So I think that uh, reading about the Dharma can be really helpful, right? Can inform us in one way, but actually having an embodied experience of the Buddha's teachings like an embodied experience of impermanence or embodied experience of the not self characteristic. I think it's fairly easy to have an embodied experience of suffering, at least for me. <laughs> uh, so this is this practice, like I said before, is, is below the neck, right? It's, it's coming from the mind, which is not really located here, but I'll, I'll use this anyway, uh, to drop below that, right? So Joshu's response of Mu is like, Manjushi sword, cutting through his attempt to grasp onto something, right? I want to have this be fixed, right? For some reason, the small mind uh, wants to fix things. Uh, maybe that's, uh, in a way, uh, a natural response as human animals to the uncertainty of life, right? That we're trying to make sure we know exactly what's going to happen. And somehow this may comfort us, but I think also it can uh, it can back us into a corner, right? So this flexible mind, or as Suzuki Roshi calls it, water logic, right? How how can practicing, studying, embodying koans help us have this water logic, where we just flow with what's arriving without like sticking our big stick or a gigantic boulder in the flow, right? So I think that these koans are helping us to drop below the intellectualization of the koan itself and of life and of us, ourselves, right? So uh, this monk, maybe he wants to know for sure whether Buddha nature uh, or emptiness runs through all sentient beings, not just humans. Uh, and maybe this uh, monk is coming more from his head rather than from his heart and this experience, an embodied experience of, of emptiness or the Buddha nature. So the monk uh, is caught up in these concepts, perhaps, and discursive thinking, right? The small mind chatter. And also this moo could be read as a, meaning, a meaningless sound, right? So we could practice with this sound, mu, this one syllable, mu, when we're actually sitting zazen. It's like just when I was sitting zazen earlier, uh, you can practice with the sound as you inhale and also as you exhale, right? Inhale, mu, exhale, mu, 
right? Just silently saying that to yourself. And I find it to be a really, since moo is a, again, like a meaningless sound, it could be used that way. And also since, um, since what we don't want to do is like, oh, moo is nothingness. And what does nothingness mean? And I'm going to sit here and think about nothingness, <laughs> right? So again, this the sound of moo when, when thoughts arise, uh, it could be a way to anchor the mind and the breath, right? The body breath while you're practicing meditation, right? So thoughts arise, there's the moo, you're exhaling, thoughts might arise, just moo on the exhale, just allow that moo to extend itself. And then again, inhaling moo, exhaling moo as a way to settle the mind, yoke the mind to a physical experience because that mind likes to time travel while the body's sitting there, right? So uh, this is one way I find it to be helpful for me. And also I find uh, just in uh, working on this talk, just also finding moo. I'm using it all the time now, actually, as I, <laughs> if something arises and uh I feel like it's taking me away somewhere or there's like some suffering that arises associated with this thinking that I'm like, move, just the right move. And uh, one of the sayings of the Buddha is um, sentient beings delight in proliferation. The Tathagata does not delight or the Tathagata delights in non-proliferation, right? So the mind proliferates and this move can help us slice through that proliferation and by proliferation, what I mean is uh, there might be a sound that arises or a thought that arises while we're meditating. And if we are not paying attention close enough, before you know it, there's all these associations that have arisen about that sound or about a thought. And then before, as you probably have experienced this, who knows how much time can pass before we realize, oh, I've been lost in thought, right? So this move can help us be a container where it brings us back and you don't have to engage the thinking mind. As Suzuki Roshi says, don't invite thoughts for tea because when we invite thoughts for tea, all of a sudden there's this conversation that small mind is having with small mind. So just this could be, the move could be a way to use uh, that sword to slice through and help undercut our fascination with, with thought or with thinking, with thinking mind. So in his commentary, uh, Mumon says, his commentary for this uh, Joshu's Mu, he says that to master Zen, you must pass the barrier of the ancestors to attain this subtle realization. You must completely cut off the way of thinking. Then you will be like a ghost clinging to the bushes and weeds. Now, I wanna ask you, what is the barrier of the patriarchs? Why it is a single word, moo. This is the front gate to Zen. Therefore, it is called the Mumankan of Zen. So moo is the gateless gate of Zen, according to Muman. And cutting off this way of thinking, cutting off the way of thinking, right? The essential art of Zazen is, is the practice of non-thinking, right? Uh, Dogen says. So a ghost, insubstantial, right? No permanent self here, arising phenomena, the ghost clinging to the bushes and weeds. So this ghost can't really grasp onto anything, right? Trying to push, cling to bushes and weeds, bushes and weeds, you can see that as duality, right? The 10,000 things like a ghost clinging, really trying to uh, hold on to something that's insubstantial. So the single word mu is the gateless gate of, of Zen. And Muman's short verse about this koan is this, the dog, the Buddha nature, the pronouncement, perfect and final. Before you say it has or has not, 
you are a dead man on the spot. Right. So the first two lines, he's saying, oh, Joshua's pronouncement, it's perfect and final. And then he counters that by saying, oh, but before you say the dog has Buddha nature, or has not Buddha nature, as soon as you start to engage, the mind starts to proliferate, trying to fix on something, you are a dead man on the spot. But these, the conceptualization right, of something is already far removed from the uh, somatic or physical experience of that, uh, yeah, this, when you conceptualize something, it's already dead, right? Suzuki Roshi also says that. So if you say it has or has not, you're a dead man on the spot. So I decided to try my hand at writing my own, my own verse, my own understanding of Joshu's Mu. And since I have always been a big fan of Dr. Seuss's rhyme, I, um, and since it's the holiday season, uh, one of my favorite Dr. Seuss uh, poems or stories is the Grinch, right? How the Grinch stole Christmas, especially the old one. I haven't really seen the new version because I, I love the old cartoon where Barlas Karloff is the narrator. He does such an amazing job. So this is my understanding of this Mu Koan and uh, homage to Dr. Zeus with his wonderful, the innovative rhyme scheme. All right, so here it goes. Every monk down in Whoville liked words a lot, but the hermit who lived north of Whoville did not. The hermit loathed words. She avoided delusion. Please don't ask why, because the self's an illusion. It could be perhaps that her hood was too tight. It could be her tongue was not screwed on right. I think her insight was a red hot iron ball for that hermit, she knew the truth of it all. Now, whatever the reason, her tongue or her hood, she sat upright, not thinking how to do good. For the glow of Joshu's moo, like a vast ocean, waved through the hermit and set her in motion, staring down from her cave with an angelic grin. Tomorrow is almost here, the end of Sashin. She thought no thought while mindfully walking. I must find some way to stop them from talking. For tomorrow I know all the boy and girl monks will sleep and dream of self waking at noon like drunks. Then they'll do something the hermit like least of all. Every monk down in Whoville, the tall and the small, will stand six feet apart, their socially distant, distant mingling, and they'll start thinking like ghosts They'll start clinging to bushes and weeds and the myriad thinging. And oh, oh, the words, oh, the words, words, words. I hate the stream of words because words are absurd. They'll stand with open hearts with masks on their faces, a chat, chat, chatting to puzzle what the case is. Does a dog have the Buddha nature? Yes and no. They will ponder and wonder, how could it be so? If they say it has or has not, they're dead on the spot. To become ruined and homeless, talking must stop. For these monks devoted to the way, chasing the air and pursuing fragrance, they will never save their hair from the fire and their monkey minds will despair about the gateless gate, which is not even there. The more she thought about this without emotion, the more she thought I must stop this whole commotion. For nine years of wall sitting, I've sat with it now. I must stop these idle monks from talking, but how? Then in the mind door arose a flashing volition, an idea to prevent this karmic condition. I'll make a Bodhidharma staff and a red cloak. And she mused and chuckled. It'll be a sweet joke. All I need is a fast horse. And she looked around, but since steeds were scarce, there were none to be found. Did that stop the hermit? No. She simply said, if I can't find a horse, I'll sled down instead. So she grabbed her zafu, a bell and a thermos of tea, her cloak and staff, and entered a merry samadhi. She folded into lotus on top of her zafu, 
sitting like a mountain, wearing her rakasu. The hermit shouted, move, and the sled started down toward the rooms where the monks lay a snooze in their town. Like a red shadow, she glided through the twilight, the true dragon's breath pumping her heart with might. The unreal and real suffused the darkling light, stars and sky sharing the essence hidden in plain sight. The hermit on her zafu slid into Whoville and sat in the zendo. All was silent and still. The weary monks were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of the Buddha swirled in their heads. The hermit pulled out her thermos and poured some tea. From her cloak out came the bell, which she rang with glee. Monks sprang from their beds to see what was the matter. They breezed into the hall and started to chatter. Into their eyes, what should dependently co-arise? A red wrap Roshi sipping tea to their surprise. The monks grew hush, for she was so clear of karma. They knew in an instant she embodied the Dharma. Then she spoke without making a sound. The front gate of Zen is Mu, but if you try, you'll separate. Since there's no barrier, you must not hesitate. Now is the only way to enter the gateless gate. Then a star fell from the sky, striking the densho. All the monks, the tall and the small, slipped into Kensho. Behind their masks, they smiled like Makakasho. Their minds as vast as space, their wholehearted hearts aglow. Then a soft voice said, Dear Roshi, if all is Mu, then that absurd word must have Buddha nature too. And since we have to say something, what can we do? I, for one, won't ever stop saying, I love you. Hearing these words, a calmness like falling snow filled the hermit up with what she needed to know. Then she swung her staff like the sword of Manjushri, chanting the harmony of difference and unity. Just like winter streams branch into spring rivers, the emptiness of receiver, gift, and givers is what it means to be, to embody the Buddha's way like a tireless horse with shanks that have gone gray. With that, she floated like a cloud into the air and she merged with the darkness like a silent prayer. To the monks below, she gave a deep, deep gasho. They heard her silver voice shining through the moon glow. Each moment is nirvana, so drop your story because it limits your chances of satori. Thank you for Thank listening. You. Wow. <laughs> uh, we have time for questions if uh, or discussion. So if you'd like to offer a comment or a question, the easiest way is to use the uh, raised hand function, which is under the reactions at the bottom of the Zoom window. Uh, it's the easiest way for me to see you. But if that doesn't work, you can also make some motion and I'll try to see you. Drew? Thank you, Heather. Um, at, at the beginning of your talk, you used the phrase Zen being, uh, I think you said something like illumination below the neck. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, talk more about what that phrase means? <laughs> so say we're sitting in zazen and a sound arises whether it's a pleasing or harsh sound it's possible for that sound just to illuminate the body mind in a bare way meaning b-a-r-e not bear hug way, <laughs> uh, where that sound is just a sound, right? In the herd, there's just a herd, H-E-A-R-D. That sound arises and it just uh, suffuses the body-mind, right? Without a lot of mental chatter, 
right? So the illumination happening below the neck in the sense of it's possible to experience sound as sound without uh, the mind interpreting it, right? So for instance, uh, at Tassahara, the, the dominant sound of the bird is the sellers jays with their caw and other, they have very many different uh, sounds. And sometimes, you know, since there's not a whole lot to do there, uh, during the practice period, that sound could get kind of annoying after a while <laughs> because that's all it is over and over again. It's the same sound. Uh, of course, it's a different sound and I'm a different person perceiving it. Uh, so there could be lots of thoughts that arise just about the sound of the J rather than allowing that bird sound, that sound just to reverberate through the body and mind as just what it is, which is just a sound. So that's what I mean by uh, an illumination below the neck is, of course, the mind door is perceiving it. Uh, and there's a, there's a way for that with a concentrated effort for that just to be a sound without all the drama that could possibly, that could arise in the, in the mind about it. Is that helpful, Drusan? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Pat? Oh, Hi. you're just raising your thumb, not your whole hand. <laughs> I raised my whole hand. Okay. <laughs> Heather, really good to see you. Um, I, I, I loved, I loved your poem and I felt like, you know, for me, it acted like a big moo, you know, a big shout of moo, because I think one of the ways I experience that getting past, you know, words and stuff is just laughter and, 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 uh, and <laughs> it was, just, it was just beautiful. You brought in a whole lot of different poems in there that were in sutras and, <laughs> Uh, oh. Yeah, and uh, and thanks so much for your very clear um, the first part of the talk, the, mm -hmm. the, the very clear explanation. Well, I confess two things. I'll confess since I was raised Catholic, and I see uh, Bill in the corner there, uh, another Roman Catholic, if I remember correctly, <laughs> Bill Magnus, is that I I and I don't know. You probably, I mean, Bill and Pat were there when I did my first Rohatsu session in Austin. And I wrote a poem, it was all, it was the night before session, Rohatsu's end. There's a couple of lines in there that I actually borrowed from that poem as well. So um, some of it, a few, like five or six lines came from my Twas the night before session end that I recited there back in 2001. So uh, yeah, I think, like I wanted to keep talking about my understanding, but I mainly wanted to well, obviously not keep talking about it, but I partly wanted to do the move because I had this idea for the poem. <laughs> so <laughs> I couldn't resist all the who's down in Whoville, you know, all the monks down in Whoville, it just came to me and I just went with it. And I'm like, well, what's the koan? I'm like, well, it's gotta be move. So I sort of backed into talking about move. That's my, those are my confessions that, so. I have a feeling you've worked with this all your life because of all the people I've known as Zen, you are the wordiest person, or you used to be. <laughs> you were always funny. <laughs> your words were, yeah. You well, someone, <laughs> yeah, someone said to me, I'm not surprised that your verse is longer than Mumon's. I guess, you know, it's harder to write a short verse, is my understanding, right? It's like writing a haiku is not the same as it takes a lot of skill to write something short and concise as opposed to like a Dickens novel. So I'm more on the Dickens side than I am on the, the Basho side of things. So thank you, Pat. <laughs> so Bill, Bill Magnus. Hi, Heather. Hello, Bill. Um, I was sitting behind a dark non-functioning computer screen for your whole talk and I just, uh, <laughs> couldn't sit there the whole time because I just wanted to say hello. And it's just really, really wonderful to see you. And I remember your session poem and it reminded me of it. Now I know why, because you lifted from it uh, right, well. uh, without shame. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but it just so wonderful to see you and so happy with everything you're doing. Um, so 
Thank you for your practice. Thank you, Bill. Dave. Hi, Heather. Hi, Thank Heather. you so much for that. Boy, I really loved the the verse, the poem. <laughs> um, and I love the care that you put into that poem to combine these two kind of traditions. Um, really great, very rich. Um, it's gonna stay with me for a while, I think. I also really appreciate the, um, I've heard the dog koan before, um, but I really appreciated this, all the context you put around it. And, um, uh, and it really, I, I, you know, so like a lot of folks, I got a, a dog over pandemic. And um, so I just, if I can just share with y'all what, what, you know, my, my reaction to this koan right now, does a dog have food in nature? So it's 619 this morning, we had a massive thunder uh, burst, lightning and thunder burst. Mm -hmm. And all four humans in my house woke up, including two teenagers, which is hard for two teenagers to wake up at 619 in the morning on a Saturday morning <laughs> after they just finished finals in high school. Um, we literally all ran down to get the dog. And then we all, we wrapped the dog in their thunder shirt and sat together on a bed with the dog who was shaking miserably. Oh, oh. Um, so there's one answer to, does a dog have Buddha nature? But then another one is, um, then as I was sitting with the saga this morning, um, the dog never does this, but a uh, poppy seed came in to where I was sitting and sat next to me, circled me once while I was sitting and then went and sat behind me. Um, mm. So, yeah. Mm. So does a dog have Buddha nature? Moo. Awesome. Moo. Love it. Yes. Thank you. And, and David, your example of the dog, it was a poppy seed? Poppy seed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, his, his? She. She, her. Let's go with they. Everyone's non-binary in my house. Let's do, let's do the non-binary. It's <laughs> um, just also... The dogs, the dogs shuddering is this illumination, right? Most likely, again, I don't know for sure. The dog, poppy seed, you know, they're not reflecting on the thunder. Oh, I hate thunderstorms. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. There's just a, a bodily experience for the dog, right? Mm. So um, that's, uh, to me, helpful to... When we think about it, that they're, uh, the somatic being of the dog reacting to reacting to the sound in a primal way. So I think that's the silent that's the illumination that I feel like could be helpful when we're able to drop below the chatter of the thinking mind. And I never knew that dogs had thunder shirts. I I, I kind of want one of those. Just, yeah. yeah, I want to be swaddled in a thunder shirt. Yeah. It's still time to send me a present, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Thanks. <laughs> you have a couple of uh, responses in the chat, which you might want to hear um, from Joel. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, a thank you from Anne and uh, also uh, what a beautiful talk. Thank you so much for sharing from Catherine. Thank you. Yeah, for me, <clears throat> my favorite line, I guess, uh, and it comes out of a, a cheeky question I asked Paul Haller, does Mu have Buddha nature? Right? And of course he said the clever answer would be to say Mu or maybe to bark, I don't know. And I think that that's, for me, the turning phrase is yes and no, right? It's like, if everything arises from the one source, how could, how could a word not have Buddha nature, if you will, right? So it's like all that coming together, arising from the one source. So of course, we have to say something. And, and what is, um, where is that something coming from? 
Is that any different from the silent illumination? Right, so it's all all the one source, and so uh, there has to be some sort of expression, and this is the way that we express each other, express as humans through language. <clears throat> and I also came across these four myths uh, by Stephen Hine, H E I H E I N E, the Dogen scholar, about the Wu, about the Mu. Well, in Chinese, it's Wu, about the Mu koan, um, and he says they don't. It doesn't, he wrote a 240 page monograph about the Mu Koan. I, I just dipped into it a little bit, uh, but he says that it doesn't mean to not have any uh, intellectual conversation or understanding of it. He's like, it's just that this is the most popular version of it, but there's other versions as I mentioned. And so he, if you want a real deep uh, explication or, uh, of, of the Mu Koan, you can read his, his um, monograph. I think it's called like Cats and Dogs. Um, any case, so, it's, so I think, again, it's not either or, right? How can, how can, how can silent illumination inform koan in introspection and how can koan introspection inform silent illumination, right? So how can we shake up our ideas about what Zen is, right? Or how I should be practicing, I, I had a, I, I had a bad meditation. No, you just had meditation. It was just meditation. <laughs> no bad, no good or bad Zen student sitting. Just meditation as it is, this moment as it is, without all the extra interpretations of it. Thank you, Heather. Hi, Marco. Hey. <laughs> so I have a question for you given what you just said, <laughs> and actually just the through the thread of the practice of Mu, and uh, just how we started this talk, Choro kind of um, spoke of a number of different positions that you've found yourself in over the many years of practicing in temples, in monasteries, in urban centers. And I wonder how the practice of Mu uh, translates through different positions like being an Eno or being a executive director or <laughs> being the head of the online uh, Zendo at San Francisco Zen Center. Like how do you, how does Mu come into practice uh, given that um, it's not just the cushion that you're tending to? Well, yeah, thank you. It's a, a good question. It's not a good question, it's just a question. <laughs> uh, I feel that uh, wonderful, one wonderful aspect of being in Sangha, which uh, also you know, can be wonderful and then also frustrating, is you have to deal with all these people that you may or may not get along with personality-wise. Uh, and so this move for me is in some ways just like bowing our, our custom of bowing to each other at Tassahara when we walk past. So it's like I, in the process of bowing, I'm um, saying hello, I'm honoring this person because that's because there's this person, whether I like this person or not. Uh, and of course, that all changes, right, depending on circumstances. So for me, it's just like, as Norman Fisher's book says, you know, you greet me and I bow. So uh, I I feel that um, Mu helps us slice through these preferences, the discrimination of good or bad or like or dislike. Uh, I like this person, I dislike this person. Mu, um, it's cold, it's hot, Mu. I've got people to feed as the Tenzo. I like this recipe, I dislike this recipe, Mu. Uh, and I feel like that helps us slice through the drama of the mind. Uh, so it's not, about having the perfect circumstances to experience liberation or the perfect person, job, whatever it is to experience liberation. It's like how in the middle of arising circumstances, which may uh, be triggering, how could there be this understanding of Mu, this experience of Mu, which helps me not grasp onto this circumstance, this person, the situation, my internal arising and making it concrete. 
right? So the more concretized I, I am, like the more of a statue I perceive myself, well, then I project that onto everybody, right? Everybody is this way. And living in Sangha and being in those different roles, especially like for me being the Tenzo, uh, which I would, I, I don't think I'd ever agree to do again. <laughs> and each ocean of practice, each ocean of the practice role, a different Heather arises. And each moment on the practice role, Heather arises differently. And so for me, Mu is like a one syllable of what, Carl Brunholtz calls in his book, The Heart Attack Sutra, that I, the mind that's perceiving, right? So Heather's mind that's perceiving is also dynamic. The sensory objects that are my mind is perceiving or my nose or my eyes or my ears or my, my body are perceiving, that's all, they're also uh, dynamic. So he calls them complexes of mutually arising phenomena, something like that. So for me, Mu, in some ways, is just like a short way, short word to encompass that, slicing through that, remembering dependent co-arising, and remembering that each moment is, is uh, perfect in the sense that it's the moment that's arising, right? the suchness of the moment. So for me, Mu is, is all of that into one little word, one syllable that uh, helps me not get lost in, in thinking mind where we're suffering. <laughs> suffering is thinking mind in some ways. Suffering is selfing. It's like equal sign. Suffering is selfing. So I think that's how Mu helps me. It's a long explanation, but thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> And actually, as you were speaking and, and saying that you don't think you'd ever say yes to being Tenzo again, I was thinking at the very least, Tenzo has the um, the physicality of mm -hmm. bowing to the Buddha tray when yes. you send it to the Zendo. It's kind of like, that's a big moo right there. It's yeah. like, hey, <laughs> whatever happened in the kitchen this last you know, however many hours, moo. <laughs> yes. Let it go. <laughs> yes, and I think the more the uh, yeah, I think it's the the helpful jewel of sangha, right? Where the mood just speaks to yeah, this wisdom that runs through all things, and we're just honoring honoring that moment because here it is, it's precious and it's gone. And as Suzuki Roshi says, the moment we try to conceptualize anything, it's dead. So. We can't really conceptualize Mu, and it can also help to have a conversation about it. As long as we know that Mu goes beyond words and phrases. So. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Mm -hmm. Any other questions, comments, Mu's? I see a chat question, and then I also see Melanie has her hand up. So Heather, I really appreciated your talk. I thought for a wordy person, your talk was very concise, but also rich. And I really appreciate that you talked about where you um, found some information about Moo, because to me, it's like an invitation to also explore those things. I haven't particularly read a lot. Um, and, and mostly, um, although I'm not doing so well now, sat in my um, years of Zen practice. And because I think that idea that, um, you know, you kind of find your own way. Uh, I, I like the openness of exploring different traditions and, and seeing those things. Mm -hmm. I also like the conciseness of move for a wordy person, because I'm pretty wordy myself. It's perfect. <laughs> and, and the example of using it in your, um, in your daily practice or moment to moment practice was, uh, I think I'm going to borrow that because 
it's kind of like an equalizer in a way, like whatever mm-hmm. happens, however bad it is, or like you, you, and it was fun to listen to you and Mako talk about your, you know, what's behind that story of being directors and things like that. And some stories you could probably tell of disasters or successes and things like that to have that moo bow <laughs> was really, really a treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there, are there other are there other practices that you use like sort of on a moment to moment or daily basis? There's a question. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah. Sometimes I, um, like I've been practicing with, I, mean, I don't think this is a novel practice, but practicing with putting my, my pants on in the morning, using my left foot first, because I'm right-handed. Right. So it's like the, it's just because it's a container for my mind, right? When things become rote, like, oh, I always, you don't remember, you don't realize or recognize that we might be, um, I have to pay more attention if I'm going to put my left foot in my pants first, because uh, it's not uh, my dominant uh, way of being. So I, and then I also try to pay attention to like what hand is opening the door, the doorknob. And trying to use my left hand, like even if I'm reaching with my right, like left, just again, placing the mind, not like in a neurotic way, (laughs) but just placing the mind's attention on these small uh, daily uh, physical, um, yeah, physical things, right? Opening the door, putting on my pants. Sometimes, at least at Tassahara, when I was eating with with chopsticks more, I would, uh, during Oriyoki, try to use my left hand, again, because I'm right-handed. That's really difficult. And you don't have much time to eat Oriyoki there. So it's like, uh, but it made me concentrate more, right? Just like, tofu, get in there, tofu, you can do it, you can, you know? And and so it's like, how do we break up the stories of who we are? Like, I'm right-handed, or maybe I'm left-handed, or... What happens when I use my left hand? What happens when I focus on my non-dominant side, right? What happens when I stop talking and I just sit silently, right? Just how can we break up the stories of ourselves? Because that also helps us break up the stories of other people, right? Because this, you know, there's that saying, I think it's ancient Greek or Roman. I can't remember which philosopher, like you, you can't step into the same river twice. Well. Well, also the person stepping into the same river, into you know, no same, you're never the same person stepping into that different river, right? Again, everything is um, everything's arising to create each to create itself, and I'm changing. The mind is changing. That's stepping into this river, and that river is flowing, of course, right? So we're flowing as well. Uh, you know, A. Hey Dogen has this phrase. Um, reality is an icicle forming in fire. Mm. And then sometimes we're like a, like a, a little pebble or a large stone in that icicle. That's the, that's the concretized sense of self. Everything's melting around us and we're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm this way. <laughs> so those are some of the practices I, I use, just paying attention to brushing my teeth, maybe with my left hand or just, shaking up my what I'm doing and paying attention, doing things that I have to pay attention to, like using two hands to hold something. Or at Tassahara, we would sit down when we were eating rather than walking around and uh. eating food and you know at the same time. So those are just some ways that you can we can incorporate that just in the daily routine of our of our lives. So thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I cannot resist, but that's a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus. Who is it? Heraclitus. Heraclitus. Yeah. yeah. I, At least I, I knew it was Greek. Hmm? <laughs> At least I had the ancient Greco-Roman down. I just couldn't remember the name. <laughs> I saw you unmute, Charo, because I thought Charo will know. <laughs> Sorry, it's a deeply ingrained uh, professional habit. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you have another comment, which is, thank you so much, Heather, for your talk. I especially enjoyed it as the experience of Moo played and continues to play a central role in my practice. Peace and love to you all. Love your laugh, Bill Harnu. 
Great. Um, Thank you. This is my chance, since I'm unmuted, to also uh, remind everyone that uh, this is uh, Saturday talks uh, provide an opportunity to offer the practice of generosity to our teachers uh, through uh, Donna uh, we need to support our teachers and to support Austin Zen Center. If, it, if you're so moved, uh, you can uh, click on uh, click through to uh, donations from the website and you can choose a particular teacher or a general donation. There, there are specific uh, categories that you can direct your generosity to if, if you uh, would like to do that and are able to do that. I just had this thought. I felt a little bit like as you were speaking, Charo, and people could select like I was on a dating game or something. <laughs> choose me, choose me. <laughs> uh, it is kind of the- Monkette the, number one. <laughs> Yeah, the visiting teachers are kind of like the Austin Zen Center dating game, I suppose. I think it could that way. Or the Hollywood Squares, I really. Yes, or the Brady Bunch, depending right, on yeah, your okay. middle year. Of that. <laughs> That's enough of that. Well, if there are no other questions or comments, um, maybe Mako can do the honors for breakouts uh, if people would like, anyone who would like to stay to socialize a bit on our last meeting of the 2021. Well, sort of, almost our last meeting. Almost our last meeting, our last, yeah. <laughs> we will be meeting on 2020. It will be still be 2021 for at least four hours when we next come to, back together for New Year's, our New Year's celebration. And uh, and into 2022, as we toast the new year and, and at our bonfire. Um, of course, all of this is dependent on what the Austin numbers are and cases, but um, as much as we can, we will continue to do our very best to uh, adopt policies and practices for uh, balancing safety and also the need to actually have uh, in-person practice together. <laughs>